Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our second Tuesday talk since we rebooted last week. My name is Lisa Slade and I'm Assistant Director here at the Gallery and we are of course on Ghana country. I'm going to be focusing on this exhibition. In more ways than one, this space has been curated as a response to the current conditions. So as the curator of this exhibition, Chromatopia, I'm going to take you through my thinking. I'm going to talk about each work just briefly. This exhibition, as I mentioned, is very much a response to COVID. And the exhibition began with the chance encounter, as the surrealists like to say, with the work of art. And that work of art is the painting from 1939 called Harvest, which is on the entry wall, which no doubt you've all had a chance to look at. It's a large painting for its time. It was painted by Dame Laura Knight, a British painter who, for the British, really requires very little introduction. She was a leading figure of 20th century art, so significant that she was declared a dame. She was also the first woman in the history of the Royal Academy to have full membership. Now, when the RA or the Royal Academy commenced in the 1770s, there were two women permitted. So Dame Laura Knight occupies this incredible position in the history of British art and in the history specifically of the Royal Academy or the RA. In the 1770s, when the RA was established, there were two women permitted to be part of the founding academy, but those two women were not given full citizenship rights. Those two women were Mary Moser and Angelica Kaufman. The latter represented very well in our collection by a painting that's on view in Gallery 12. We don't have Moser, she's on our hit list. Moser and Kaufman were admitted into the academy, but not with full rights because of a sense of indecent kind of access or propriety to the, to, the, to the naked body, those two women were not permitted to draw from the live model, even if that live model was female. So they were only permitted to do studies from plaster casts and studies from engravings. They were not permitted to kind of graduate to the full level. There's a really fascinating painting by Zoffany that was painted in the 1770s that depicts the full academy. And there are a group of men, as you would expect, standing around a naked male body. Moser and Kaufman are represented as cameo portraits hanging on the wall. It was the only way that Zoffany could get them into the picture. 170 years later, along comes Laura Knight. And Laura Knight is given full RA citizenship. By the time that happens, she's already a dame and she's on the cusp of being appointed as an official war artist as well. All of that was front of mind for me when I had the encounter with Harvest. So it might be an anecdote, but I hope it's of some interest that we take requests for images of works in our collection from all over the world very, very regularly. There is a wonderful society called 
the Laurenite Society or the Dame Laurenite Society, who are made up of family members, but also devotees to Knight. Such is her standing in the British art world. They're working on a new website and on a new publication, and they requested a new image of our painting Harvest. I walked into the area where we take photographs and I saw the painting for the first time. Now, I've almost been here for 10 years, such as the breadth and depth of this collection, that it is possible for someone, and I'm a sticky beak, as you can well imagine, but it is possible for somebody not to uncover everything, even in a 10-year period. I had not seen the painting in the flesh. I was struck by it, so much so that I ran out of the room and grabbed my colleague over here, Lee, Lee Robb, and said, come and have a look at this, because it just, it was the confluence of many things that drew me to the work. One is that I hadn't seen it before. Two is that it was by an artist that I had long championed. Three is that it was so kind of overblown and fabulously kind of this incredible spectrum of colour, this explosion of colour from 1939 England that really struck me. And fourth, obviously I was viewing it through the experience of the gallery being in shutdown. We were closed at that time. For the first time in our history, we were closed. We were in conditions that felt a little bit like what I imagine it feels like to be on the cusp of war. This was the early days of the lockdown where we we didn't quite know how things were going to pan out. So it was the confluence of all of these things that struck me. I was also drawn to the fact that it's not a very fashionable painting, that it's a painting that many might dismiss as being overly bucolic, was the word that Lee used, and it's a perfect word, overly utopian in its pastoral adoration. And I thought, oh, I love it all the more because it might well be unpopular right now. I'm always interested in what's popular and what's not. And it really lit the match. It struck the match of what, had, what became this display. This display not only responded to finding that work again, but also to the incredible work that the Restless Dance Company, led by Michelle Ryan, have been doing. And Michelle and the team have developed a very beautiful performance that you can experience as a live performance. It's been so popular that it is sold out. But you can also experience, after my talk today, walk into the space and you'll see a projection of that performance and be caught up in the spectrum of color that is the lighting display which has been curated by Jeff Cobham. There's a musical score which has been developed by two musicians from Zephyr Quartet and it is such an encounter. Seeing Through Darkness was a response to our collection, so you've got all these lovely ricochets, me responding to the Laura Knight in the collection. They were responding to the Georges Rualt, expressionist French artist's work in the collection, and all of these things coming together. I was very conscious that we'd be pushing people into this gallery and then into this smaller gallery with these dramatic chiaroscuro of Georges Rualt, this dramatic black and white, these very somber tones and I felt like we needed a tonic for our time. And Chromatopia was kind of born out of that reckoning. It was also born out of the fact that we are the very fortunate recipients of great acts of generosity by artists and communities and donors and collectors from all over Australia predominantly. And our collection is constantly growing it's our job to make sure that this collection is constantly growing as the state's single greatest asset. It's very important that we keep the state safe and well, is the way I like to see it. So Chromatopia is also a celebration of new works that have made their way into our collection. So what I'm going to do, with your permission, is to leap now from Dame Laura Knight 
her vision in 1939 when she and her husband had kind of moved to Malvern. They'd moved away from the city because war was about to commence. They were staying in a hotel. She was painting that countryside just before she's appointed as official war artist. And she's depicting this kind of timeless scene. Two of her friends, the Nichols, who were experts in Shakespeare's work, are sitting in the foreground of the painting, but it always strikes me as slightly entertaining that I feel like the horse and the two donkeys are more important than the Nichols on the left. And in many ways, the star of the painting is light. Whilst she was very much a royal academician, she was actually very much an impressionist. And she was, uh, and you can appreciate this if you look at the painting in a particular way at the top of the painting, you can see the way she's troweled the impasto paint onto the surface. She's not an artist that is afraid of the brushstroke. It was not her enemy, as it was in the case of many of the academic painters. The, the phrase, the brush is the enemy of the painter, was a thing. Artists would deliberately work a surface so that you wouldn't see the brush. That was not Knight. Knight was very interested in cultivating the mark of the artist, and you can see that. From there, I like to leap straight over here behind Karina. And we have a new acquisition into the collection. It's one of two paintings gifted by the artist herself, Virginia Cuppage. Virginia Cuppage is in her, I'm not sure if she's a septuagenarian or an octogenarian, but she'd be on the cusp. And she has fairly recently returned to Australia after living for almost six decades in New York. As a very young woman, she left Brisbane. So Virginia was born in, you can do the maths while I'm talking to you, but she was born in 43, and in the 60s, she left Brisbane. She had one phone number scribbled up on a piece of paper in her pocket, and that was the number of fellow artists that she'd kind of been introduced to but didn't know well, and that was the artist Clement Meadmore who many of you would know from our collection. We have a wonderful example of his work called Cotter, which was gifted by Leslie Lynn into our collection. She knew Clem. She knew that Clem, by association, and she knew that Clem was in New York. She contacted Clem, and that was the beginning of a relationship, a relationship which resulted in many things, including a major sculpture by Clem that's in the National Gallery of Australia's courtyard, which is called Virginia. It's actually called V, but it relates to Virginia. So a long association for those two. Virginia left very humble Brisbane in the 1960s and moved to New York. She moved to Soho and she made this painting when she moved, it's called Second Transition, and she made this painting after her second transition, her transition into a new studio in New York. And Virginia was drawn to the work of artists like Kenneth Noland, whose work is down here. It's the very long kind of vertical painting that you see there in that coral pink. People like Noland, and interestingly enough, no one ever kind of cites this in art history, but Noland, his career began, or his epiphany began by visiting the studio of Helen Frankenthaler who we also have in our collection. I could have hung her in the show as well. This, this display could have been hung 10 times over. Um, Helen Frankenthaler, a fairly recent acquisition to, into our collection, is known for bleeding one color into another. And it was Nolan and his partner at the time who went to her studio, and that kind of lit the match for Nolan. One of the reasons that Virginia was so keen on moving to New York is that because she knew the work of Nolan and other colored fields, a movement known as Colourfield, Colourfield Painters. 
what Cuppage gives us, and in fact she laughs about this because her entire life in New York was dominated by the perception that she was an Australian artist. She would come back to see her mother, also an artist, Judy Cuppage, the late Judy Cuppage, quite frequently, but she was always kind of, I guess the remnant or the, the legacy of her being Australian always stuck. But of course, being in New York, she didn't feel particularly Australian. And I think you've heard this time and time again about expats and that sense of kind of belonging, the question of belonging. So when this work was described in a New York journal, it was described as being characteristic of the extreme and very distinctive effects of the Australian light. She bleeds one colour over another, the palette not dissimilar at all to Laura Knight. I imagine if Knight was still with us, there'd be an affinity between the two artists. This work ricochets off. There's a, there's a lot of visual play, as I'm sure you've, I hope you've experienced in this display. This work ricochets off with many others, probably most prominently with this Tim Maguire also gifted by the artist to the gallery a number of years ago. The first time this work's been seen and the first time Virginia's work's been seen. Tim Maguire is based in Sydney, but he actually made this work or printed the final stage of this work in Paris. And he has long, in fact, he was a very early expat. He left Australia in his early 20s to study. And he studied with people like Tony Cragg. And he was part of the Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf Academy. And he was someone who, when he arrived, I think Cragg said something to him like, I'm going to fail you if you come to class. It was a slight inversion on what you're normally told. Because what Craig said was, what I'm going to teach you, you can actually do in any art school in the country, but what you can't do is go to museums in Europe from Australia. So I want you to have your education in the great European museums. And that's what Tim Maguire did. And Tim Maguire fell in love with Dutch Vanitas painting, among other things. He's probably best known for his upscaled, oversized blooms, where he takes tulips and other flowers, uh, as though from those Dutch still life paintings, and creates a kind of celebration of their form and color. And by doing so, almost abstracts them. He's a painter, but this is not a painting. It's a painting, I like to think of it as a painting by another means. It's like he's tried to make a painting without paint. So the story goes a little bit like this. A year after the King Lake fires, which are still on record in Australia as being the most deadly fires with more than, more than 170 deaths, he visited King Lake. He took some photographs of the bush a year after the bushfires in a state of regeneration. This seems like a particularly poignant thing to be talking about right now because we are just on the one year anniversary of the most devastating bushfires here in Australia. Not that this wasn't Australia, of course it was as well, but here both locally and further afield. He took those photographs. He brought the photographs back to the studio and he made a painting. The painting was monochromatic, largely black and white, and then he scanned that painting. When he scanned that painting, he put it through a process which is the CMY, not the K, not the black, but the C, cyan, M, magenta, Y, yellow, printing process. So you know you print a cartridges on your home printers with those colors? He kind of uses that 
as a way of creating a painting. He uses that idea of layering those colors. I think now that you know that, you'll start to see the way certain colors are emerging. He then upscales and reprints in Paris in this instance, paintings that have now become prints, paintings by another name. He then takes solvent and he disrupts the picture's surface. He disrupts the perfection of the picture by flicking solvent onto the surface. And that act of flicking creates these little spectral moments across the surface. In just the few days that this display has been up, I've had people ask me if it's illuminated from the back, if it's a moving image. There's a sense of fantastic kind of ambiguity about this work, and I think it's in that ambiguity that Maguire likes to reside. He loves the idea of troubling the viewer and troubling painting. Now, someone else who likes to trouble painting is Dale Frank, and I will not be insulted if you turn your back to me and look at the painting while I'm talking about it. It'll be much more fun. This painting is one that has been in the collection for some time, but it is not a painting that in my 10 years I had viewed on the wall, so it was well and truly time. It's a painting that carries uh, a fabulous title. I can't read it to you because I can't remember the entire title. Recently I visited Dale Frank's studio. So Dale Frank is an artist who's based in Singleton, which is in the Upper Hunter in New South Wales. And a few months back, and I found myself in quarantine subsequently for my troubles, uh, <laughs> home quarantine, so it wasn't too bad. But I made a visit to New South Wales for lots of reasons, and among one of the things that I did while I was there was to visit this artist's studio. He's someone that I have kind of worked with for many decades, but I had never visited his studio. Can you imagine what, what's required to make a painting like this? Now, to make this painting, he essentially, it's like a, this reminds me of panning for gold is what I think of when I look at this. So the painting itself has to be lateral, it has to be prostrate, and then the artist pulls paint and varnish, most importantly in this one, across the surface, working with at least one other assistant to tilt the painting, to capture the movement of, paint, of the paint, and the, of, of course generated by gravity and all sorts of things, and that's the way the painting is made. It's an act of chance, an act of pooling in order to capture the composition, in order to capture the magic. Now, when you walk into his studio, you're walking on decades of varnish, and from the very tables that these paintings are made on, because of course he doesn't work on easels for obvious reasons, he works with them flat, from the tables are strings of varnish and strings of paint that connect the top of the, of, of the desks or the top of the tables with the floor. Something else. I did ask him if I could exhibit the studio. And he said that a number of years ago, the gallerist Anna Schwartz tried, but she couldn't get the floor up. There was so much varnish on the floor that she couldn't lift it. So this painting here is 
a little bit like Maguire's, a kind of celebration and, a, and a, an undoing of the act of painting. And I have had a little, there were extended labels for each work. Um, and you'll see there my references to yellow because yellow has a particular pride of place in the history of art. And I must make mention of David Cole's book. David Cole's published a book that's down in our gallery shop called Chromatopia. I have not taken his title so much because my title has different resonances that I'll come to in a minute, but David Cole's book is incredible. He talks about the history of colour and in it he talks about yellow and the way in which cad yellow replaced chrome yellow. Chrome yellow was, was really a colour that was known as being, as being essentially fugitive. And Today, conservationists use this very language. They talk about some colours as being fugitive, so poetic. Yellow is a fugitive colour because it could not be held. It would fade over time. It would change colour. Its chroma was not static or distinct. And the invention of cadmium yellow changed the game because it meant that the colour was stable, unlike the unstable yellows of the past. JMW Turner is the best story in yellow. It was during Turner's time that cad yellow was invented and you see in his paintings the shifting use of yellows across his career. So Dale Frank, in terms of this idea of a celebration of colour but also a celebration of painting made a lot of sense to me. Now I chose the title Chromatopia because I was conscious of its etymology, obviously. I'm not going to use a name without knowing what it means. Chroma, of course, refers to colour, but topia refers to topos, which means place. And in thinking about Laura Knight as my first landing, I was thinking about, well, what is the place of colour? What are the places of colour in us? And for Dale Frank, it's the studio. For Virginia Cuppage, the experience of New York overlaid with Australian light. For Tim Maguire, that experience, of course, of bushfire country a year in. Now, a work that you can't see that well, but you'll have a chance to see for those of you over on this eastern side, is a work that speaks very much to the idea of place and colour, and it's a painting by Naomi Hobson. It was acquired last year and it did hang, if you've seen it before, it's because we did have it briefly in the vestibule last year. It's a painting that's called Touch the River Floor. And for Hobson, who's an artist that works across painting, ceramics and photography, in fact you'll see her photographs in the next Tarnandi, which opens here in mid-October this year, Hobson is She's almost kind of, I think of her as a bit of a synesthete. And as you know, those who experience, genuinely experience synesthesia, I think we've all got a little bit of it, but there are extreme synesthetes for whom there is literally a cross wiring, who can taste color or hear color, who can see sound. I mean, some of those senses connect more with some, some people are synesthetic in one domain and they're not in another. I think we're all a little bit synesthetic though. And if there's in, one intention in this show, it's almost to bring out the inner synesthetes in all of us. She talks, Naomi Hobson, who's from Cohen in far north Queensland, an Aboriginal artist, she talks about this idea of the colour of country. That when she thinks about places, they come to her as colours. So to me, she had to be in this exhibition, Chromatopia. She's facing off with this new acquisition, so a work that has not been seen, by Gareth Sansom. And many of you will 
well, I hope you'll remember Sansom from the room of Sansoms that I installed in the Magic Object Exhibition in 2016 in the Adelaide Biennial, and it was in the Gallery 11 on the northern end of this wing. Sansom is unlike any other painter in this country. He has an incredibly long-standing practice. He's like Virginia, but he never left home. Well, he actually did, he traveled a bit, but he has been persistently painting from his studio in Melbourne and now Sorrento for decade upon decade. He is a restless experimenter. He tries every trick in the book and he collides references in a way that he invites our comprehension he, he asks more questions than he gives answers. And this one is called Wittgenstein's Brush with Vorticism. Now, Wittgenstein is, of course, the philosopher who is interested very much in language and linguistics. And vorticism is the British movement. We think about it as the kind of British correlative of futurism, which was an Italian movement. So those things come together in a way that I can't even really pin down, folks. So curator here telling you I love the work, but I don't necessarily understand it all, nor do I need to. That's the great thing about art. And in this painting here, you've got this lurid pink through which he's masked up so he can paint over the pink. One of the last things he does is paint that pink. And then he's drawn this kind of speech bubble in the middle there, which extends out this cubist futuristic landscape. Can you see that at the top there with all of those colours? And I thought, he's such a maverick artist. If there's an artist that needs to be in chromatopia who has their own special place of colour, it's Gareth. Now, I've already mentioned the work that Kenneth Noland next to Gareth Sansom. Can I tell you that I'm in regular contact with most of these artists and they're also chuffed to be in each other's company, which is part of the fun. Gareth Sansom can't quite believe that he's hanging next to Kenneth Noland. And hanging next to Kenneth Noland is the, one of the most recent acquisitions. There are two that are brand new, that have really just only arrived in the building. And it's this work by Jitish Kalat. Jitish Kalat, Mumbai-born and lives in Mumbai today, so Indian artist, but very much an international artist. Kalat is known as a curator as well as an artist. He talks about the fact that he is an ethnographer of the everyday. He likes to tap into the everyday and bring the everyday to life. It's a lenticular work that flips from one colour to the next. In fact, the blue flips to orange, the yellow flips to purple. So it bounces around the colour wheel. If you're good at the colour wheel and what's opposite and complementary colours, it flips across the colour wheel, a dance across the colour wheel as you actually move along it. So you move along the work and it moves for you. The work is called Sightings, and there are numbers and letters after sightings, which I can't quite remember, but they relate to the day, the month, and the year in which this sighting was made. And what this sighting is, is the very vernacular experience of buying, seeing, and then buying fruit in a market. If you've had the opportunity to go to India, you'll know that Markets are like no other in India, and markets are just these incredible places that manage to bring the whole world into one space. In the case of this particular work, he has bought some fruit and then photographed that fruit to make these works. But the act of making the lenticular prints means that not only do we flip from orange to blue and yellow to purple, but we also flip from micro, the skin of an avocado, the skin of, a, of a, an orange, to 
the skin of the world. There's a moment that, to which these start to look kind of astral, to which they start to look like the universe. We zoom out. So we're zooming in and zooming out. On the northern wall is a body of work that Lee acquired probably two and a half years ago now. And this body of work, we're super excited to see because we've never seen this work ever. There is one image of this work when it was first installed in in the year 2000. It was made in the year 2000 and installed at the jam factory on a blue wall. And it's a very poor image, a little grainy, tiny kind of image that we've all been looking at to get a sense of the work. It's a work by an artist who sadly died young last year. Her name's Annabelle Collette, and she was living at Clayton Bay at the time that she passed away, and she died in March last year. Um, we were very fortunate to acquire her work prior to her death, and this is among those acquisitions. It's such an exciting work because she it's playful, it does everything. You know, it's one of those works of art that's a wonderful celebration of the art of knitting. It's very, very playful. You'll reference, you'll see references to body parts. You can have a little bit of fun to see which body parts um, are alluded to in which particular form. Some are more obvious than others. The nipple's very obvious, the scrotum perhaps less so, but I think it depends on what you own. I think that's the way it works. So go and have a look, see what you're connecting with. And she's created this incredible field of color. It's like a transgressive wallpaper. It's kind of guerrilla knitting on steroids. You know, this is a way of really commenting on this craft and using this craft playfully and thinking about gender and colour. And colour is one of the most uh, powerful convincers of, of gender. I remember the early days of being a mother shopping for my son and walking into baby stores and being asked which side of the store I should be on. And can you imagine how I felt about that? I wasn't happy to be either on either side of the store. I wasn't happy to be on the pink side and I wasn't happy to be on the blue side. And I don't think Annabelle Collette would have been happy either. Um, how it is that gender is coloured, I do not know. Now, this work frames the space through which you experience the Georges Rualt works, but it also vies off with not only the Jittish Kalat, but this very uh, recent acquisition of a work by Tracy Moffat. And it's a nice spot for me to finish talking on, actually, because it's a completely charming body of work, probably her most charming, although she's known for her charm and her wit. But it's a body of work that's called First Jobs. Now, just have a little reflective moment to reflect on your first job. Feel free to share it, if you like, but just think about the first form of employment that you had. Tracy Moffat has mined her own personal archive of first jobs. And you won't be surprised to know, she didn't have photographs of each of those jobs or the location in which those jobs took place. But she has found and repurposed, reworked, images from the archive. So images that are redolent in their hand tinting of tourism campaigns of the past from the 1950s and 60s. And she has blown those up, hand colored them so that they have this wonderful nostalgic tone. And then she has inserted herself into every single one of those scenes.
So pineapple cannery is one of my favourites. Nobody else is looking particularly excited to be doing the job that day, but Tracy Moffat certainly is. And then across to aluminium siding, which is not something that South Australians are across really, because there aren't many wooden houses, but it's a big thing in Queensland with old Queenslanders needing to be protected so-called protected. She has given her past this kind of Hollywood glow of nostalgia. There's something very kind of Queensland about the entire series as well in the coloration and the pigmentation. She sent me a message yesterday to say how delighted she is to be in this show and also in this company. And I must say that in thinking about Tracy and also about you know this idea of kind of colour right now and what colour means. I'm also thinking about the colour of our skins and I'm also thinking about how this, these ideas around indigeneity and ethnicity are at a critical point right now as well. I wouldn't say that's an explicit trope or an explicit story, but it's certainly in my thinking as I was pulling the show together. That's probably enough, isn't it? That's enough for me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week.